that song, uh, keep that song kind of on your heart and in your mind because that, that really is the lesson today. In fact, what I'm going to preach is just kind of elaborating or commentating on the song that we just sang. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 in your Old Testament. Uh, last Sunday morning, a quick reminder, I started a sermon series going through the Ten Commandments or what the Bible calls it, the Ten Words. And I want to continue that this morning, and we're going to start with the first commandment, which is no other gods before me. And I want to read uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 3, to get us started, but keep your place there, and we're going to, we're going to look at a few other things. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and then look at this in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. That is what we would call commandment number one out of the ten words or the ten commandments. It seems short and simple. So you might be thinking, well, this should be a short and simple sermon, but not quite. In fact, if you're counting commandments and you're kind of looking and examining about looking at the different commandments, you might notice, well, is this being commandment number one, does this mean it's the most important one? I don't know if we would say that this is the most important commandment, but we would say that this commandment is foundational for all the other commands. If we could somehow just get this, we somehow could just grasp this with our lives, no other gods. Then the rest of the Ten Commandments, the rest of the Ten Words, living out our faith, following Jesus, would come a little more natural for us. However, when it comes to not just understanding this first command, but actually applying it and living it, we know that there's a little bit of a problem, and I'll go ahead and tell you what that problem is. And the problem is we seem to have a lot of trouble not worshiping other gods. In preparation for this sermon this week, I came across this story, uh, and it, it's not easy on preachers, so I feel like I could share it, but there was a preacher that I read about that his first love, his main love in life was golf. Any golfers out there? Or maybe you shouldn't raise your hand because of the story I'm about to tell, but this guy loved golf so much so that it had become an obsession to him. He spent all of his time and his money and his passion and his thoughts thinking about golf, and so much so that he got his priorities out of line. And this guy was a preacher. One Sunday morning, he skipped church to sneak out to the golf course. I don't know how you do that, and you're a preacher, but that's how his priorities were out of line, how obsessed he had become. And that Sunday, he had the best golf game of his life, and he hit his one and only hole-in-one. But he realized, as he started to celebrate to himself, and he was really happy about how great his game was, he realized, I'm never going to be able to tell anybody about this, because I just skipped church to be out here, and I'm the preacher. So not only is that kind of instant karma, but it made me think about how, whether it's golf or sports or whatever it may be, we'll talk about a few things, that we have a lot of what we would call little G gods that compete for our allegiance, compete for our attention, for our time, for our passion, for our money. Now, if you were 
to keep reading in the commandments, and we'll read verse 4 and 5 here in just a second, so keep that in mind. But if you were to ask yourself a question, the first question that came to my mind is, no other gods, is that true? What would you say? Yes, hopefully. I mean, Tony, you asked for an amen, and everybody said amen when, we, when he introed the song, so we believe there are no other gods. We would believe that intellectually. We would believe that theologically. But when I first started studying commandment number one, my thought was, in the form of a question, is that true for my life? And would that be true for your life? If some outside observer examined your day-to-day activities, the way you treat people, the way you live, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, would that statement be true of you? There are no other gods but God alone. That's a tough question to really ask yourself. Would that be true? Would our actions back that up? Now look at verse 4 and 5. I'm just going to read the first part of verse 5, and and then I'll start with verse 4. It says, You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And I'll pause right there in verse 5. Now if you're a commandment counter... Where is number one and where is number two? Well, for us, for our religious tradition, we would say commandment number one is you shall have no other gods before me. So that's verse three. So what's commandment number two? Well, it's verse four through six, right? You shall not make for yourself an idol or not worship it or bow down to it. But it's kind of hard to distinguish between where commandment number one ends and commandment number two begins because they're so similar to each other. In fact, not all religious traditions count the commandments in the same order that we do. I was studying earlier this week that Lutherans and Catholics, from what I understand, they count verses three through six all as commandment number one. And then you go down to verse 17, and they split those up into commandments 9 and 10, where we have verse 17 is just commandment 10. So basically, not everybody numbers. We all believe there's 10 commandments, but we don't all believe or agree with how to number the commandments. And after spending a lot of late nights this week trying to distinguish between the two, commandment 1 and commandment 2, I will tell you it's not that easy. There's a lot of overlap You could probably just as easy consider that commandment one as two separate commandments. So here's, for my own mind at least, here's how I'm separating the two for the sake of the sermons. Is Today, I want to focus on who and what we worship. I want to focus on our worship. No other gods before me. And then next week, I want to focus on the concept of other gods, little g gods or idols, and why we, even as followers of Jesus, are so prone to give in to idolatry. So next week we'll focus on the why. This week I want to focus on who and what it is that we worship. And I don't know if you recognize this or would recognize this story, but this is a guy named David Foster Wallace. He's pretty well known still today for a commencement speech he gave back in 2005 at a a graduation ceremony in Kenyon College. After a few years after that graduation speech that he gave, he tragically took his own life after a long battle with depression. And the one thing that's kind of lived on in his memory is this speech that he gave. It's still recorded. It's still on the internet. You can listen to it. He's got some writings that have survived him. 
But it was a 22-minute graduation speech. It was very different, probably not your typical rah-rah, pump you up, go change the world. It was a very realistic this is what you can expect as an adult. A lot of redundancy, a lot of standing in line at the grocery store and you're bored and you don't want to be there. Like that was the gist of his speech. But towards the end of his speech, he said a few things that I think there's a lot of truth to what he said. And I'm going to try to quote him. But towards the end of this speech, he said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So here's this guy. I don't think he's a Christian. I don't think he, I, maybe he has a little bit of a Christian background, but in front of all these people, in front of uh, his contemporaries, other professors, in front of all these students, he says there's no such thing as atheism. No such thing as not worshiping. We all worship. And he goes on to give a few examples. He said, if you worship money and things, if that's what you give your life to, he said, then you always feel empty and you'll never have enough. And then he said, if you worship the body and beauty, if that's what you give your life to, then you always feel ugly and age and time will catch up to you and start to show. And he said, you will die a million deaths before they ever put you in the ground. If you worship power, He said, you always feel weak, and you will fear being weak, so you will always need more power, more power over other people to keep that fear at bay. And he went on to say, if you you worship the intellect, if you want people to think that you are smart, he said, then you always end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. So he said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is who and what we are going to worship. And those are some of the examples of the things that he gives that we as human beings wind up worshiping. And the more I've thought, the more I've studied this week about worship, in light of commandment number one, I think that's true no matter where you live on planet earth, no matter what culture you're a part of, no matter what language you speak, everybody worships. And to kind of press into that concept just a little bit more, I'll share with you this a book that I read several years ago by Kyle Eidelman. The book is called Gods at War. You see the, the subtitle up there, Defeating the Idols that Battle for Your Heart. So this whole book is about idols or little g gods that compete for our attention. And he defines worship. And I want to share with you his definition of worship. Because often when we think of worship, Uh, We limit worship to just what we're doing right here on a Sunday morning, but worshiping God or just worship in general is much more than just this. So here's kind of three bullet points of how Kyle Eidelman defines worship. One of those is worship is where we put our hope. Whatever we put our hope in, that's what we worship. Worship is what we chase after and what we pursue with our life. So that means all of our time, our energy, and our attention, what we're pursuing And then worship is what we sacrifice for. So think about that definition of worship. It's it's broad. Maybe it's a little different than how you would define worship. But based on that definition, where we put our hope, what we pursue with our life, and what we're willing to sacrifice for, those are the things that we wind up worshiping. And based on that definition, yes, everybody around the world worships. 
And what commandment number one is teaching us, you shall have no other gods before me, is God is teaching us and he's teaching the Israelites that right away, if you want your worship aimed, your life's pursuit aimed in the right direction, then aim it towards God and God alone. One of the early church fathers, Augustine, or uh, as theologians pronounce it, Augustine, he once wrote about God, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. God has created us for a relationship with Him. God pursues us. He gives us His Word and tells us to pursue Him. And if we're busy worshiping and giving our time and our allegiance and all of our loves and our cravings in life towards these other things, then we will always be restless because those things may promise a lot, but they will never fulfill in the long run. So what Augustine is saying is our hearts, our souls will always be restless until they finally rest in the one and true God. No other gods before me. So for the Israelites, this is what this would have meant for them. First of all, they're not to be polytheistic. I know for some of you that may seem like a big word. Polytheism just means worshiping multiple gods. In the ancient Near East, in the ancient world, pretty much all cultures and all people believed in a multiplicity of gods. I mean, you had the the god of the sun, the god of the moon, the god of the stars, the god of sex, the god of agriculture, the god of the hunt, and we could go on and on. They believed there was a god for everything, a god of the crops. And that's what they're surrounded with. And here comes God with the Ten Commandments, giving these to Moses to give to the people. And he says, you shall have no other gods before me. The first thing they probably would have heard is we're not supposed to be polytheistic, which means they just came out of Egypt. They've been in Egypt for over 400 years as slaves, but Egypt was crowded with idols and little g gods everywhere you went. So there is no doubt that the Israelites spending over 400 years in Egypt, they had been influenced by these Egyptian gods. And that Egyptian way of life and worship was probably ingrained in them, and God is now trying to purge that out of them. And kind of as an example, if you kept going in the Old Testament, in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 14, when Joshua gives this what I would call a pretty famous speech, one of the things that Joshua says is, put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt. Put away those gods and serve the Lord. No other gods before me means it's time to put the past in the past, and everything that you learned in Egypt, you kind of have to unlearn because there is only one God. You shall have no other gods before me means getting rid of the past, but also it's a warning for the future as they get ready at some point to enter into the promised land to be this holy nation, this peculiar people that God has called them to be. It's a warning against syncretism when they get into Canaan, and they're going to be surrounded by other cultures that are polytheistic. And the temptation through time would probably be, as it is for us today, start to adopt the culture around you. And slowly and subtly let that culture influence the way you think, behave, and worship. Starting with commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. This is a warning to leave the past behind and a warning for the future and what's ahead. 
Now, if you're asking honest questions and you're thinking about the world that we live in, you may think, oh, that was then, thousands of years ago, ancient cultures, primitive cultures. Do we know anybody that worships multiple gods? We don't know anybody that claims the sun, the moon, the stars as a god or the crops. Well, maybe you do know a few people, but for the most part, I would say we don't. We probably know Christians, or we know atheists, or we know other people of other religions, but for the most part, we probably don't know people who are polytheistic, or do we? Now, I've already mentioned from what I agree with, what David Foster Wallace says, that everybody worships, even if we don't call them God. And most of the gods, most of the idols that we have today are what we would say or what we would call that they're hidden in plain sight. We may not refer to them as gods. We may not refer to them as idols, but that's exactly what they are. So consider what Jesus says about having two masters and different gods. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, remember what Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You can't do it. Either you're going to love the one and hate the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. And then he says you cannot serve both what? God and, anybody know it? Money. Now, if you're in the original audience, or even today, and you hear Jesus say you can't serve both God and money, we would all probably say, I don't bow down to cash I don't bow down to my debit card. I don't worship money. But if you get to the root of what Jesus is actually saying, I think we get what he means. That with our hope, with what we pursue in life and what we're willing to sacrifice for, based on that definition of worship, then yes, money has a way of becoming a God or success or appearances. Based on what Jesus taught yeah, there are gods and idols that are competing for our allegiance. Or you could consider what Paul wrote in uh, Philippians chapter 3, and verse 18 and 19. In verse 18, he says there are people who live as the enemies of the cross of Christ. And then in verse 19, he says their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So Paul points out, the people who have their mindset on earthly things, their God is their stomach. Maybe one of the things that Paul is alluding to is the pleasures of this life, our appetites, not just food, but cravings that we have for a lot of other things that are what we would consider pleasure, and a lot of it's just kind of caught up in the moment. Paul is saying those become gods. Now, most of these things, whether it's money or pleasure of any sort, and I'm, I'm going to not get into all of those little details, or food, or whatever it may be. Most of those are morally neutral. They're amoral. So it's not like God is saying, here's all the little things in life that you can enjoy, and they're bad. But they become gods. They become idols in our lives when we obsess over them. When we become addicted to all of these little g-gods. When we spend all of our money and all of our time and all of our thoughts and put, start putting our hope and start sacrificing for these things, they may not be wrong in and of themselves, but they can quickly become gods. And we're worshiping these things, and we don't even realize that we're doing it. 
Now, one way to maybe avoid that is to take an audit of our loves. Notice I said an audit of our loves, not an audit of our lives, even though it would be an audit of our lives, but an audit of our loves, of our cravings, of the things that we care about the most and that we prioritize. Consider those things and ask yourself, is this, has this become worship for me? So based on the definition of worship and the fact that everybody worships, I would say that we do live in a polytheistic world, culture, society. We just probably wouldn't call it that. So commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me, means we're not to be polytheistic and we're not henotheistic either. I know that sounds like another big word, but henotheism is basically you acknowledge and you believe in other gods but you prioritize one main God. That's not what commandment number one is saying. It's, God is not saying, no other gods before me, meaning that I, you prioritize me even if you keep these other gods. It made me think of an article that I read many years ago about flexitarians. Ever heard of flexitarians? Uh, if you're a vegetarian, I hope this doesn't offend you. I'm not a vegetarian, but there are people who claim to be vegetarians who are flexitarians, which means they, they don't eat meat. They're mainly vegetarians, but they do make some exceptions. And they interviewed, this was several years ago, this young lady named Christy. She was 28 years old at the time, and she said, I am a vegetarian, but I really like sausage, so I will make an exception for sausage. And then when they interviewed vegetarians, apparently vegetarians, true vegetarians didn't like that very much. And that Christie girl went on to say, I'm a vegetarian, I'm just not 100% committed to it. Well, I would say that's how a lot of people approach our faith, and that's maybe an example of what henotheism is, is that, yes, we believe God is God, Jesus is Lord, that's a number one priority in our life, but we do have these other little gods that we also we give some attention to. We just prioritize mainly God. But that's not what commandment one is saying. God is not satisfied with just being the president of the board of all the other gods in your life. So commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. We know what that's saying. What that means is a monotheistic religion, one God. That God demands to be worshipped exclusively. God and God alone. No other gods at all. Monotheism is what separated the Israelites from all the other nations around them. And the unique thing about studying this now as Christians is that obviously Jesus has transformed everything. Everything we read in the law, everything we read in the Old Testament. So, as I mentioned last week, we view these commandments, we view the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. And we still are monotheistic. We still believe in one God. We believe in a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. One God and three persons. And if that sounds confusing, we're not going to do a separate lesson on that. I did do a lesson on the Trinity back in the last summer. You can go back and listen to it if you want to. But what we claim, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. We have one God, triune God, and Jesus is Lord. Lord. So I'll come back to this question. 
based on commandment number one, based on what we believe as followers of Jesus, you shall have no other gods before me. Is that true? Is that true of your life? If you took a close look at your own life, and and based on that definition of worship, what we chase after, what we pursue, what we put our hope in, what we're willing to sacrifice for, do we have other gods in our life? Or are we following this first foundational commandment that says no other gods? If it's true that everybody worships, even if we wouldn't use that language, and we get the choice of who and what we're going to worship, what will you choose? It's kind of like Joshua in that speech in Joshua 24. Choose this day whom you're going to serve. As for me and my household, we are going to serve the Lord. Now that sounds great. Verbally. It sounds great on a Sunday morning in a worship service, a Christian worship service, but do we live that out? Are we really worshiping God and God alone, God exclusively, on Monday through Saturday? Well, that's the challenge I think that commandment number one brings to us. But I will mention, again, as we follow Jesus, As we looked at from our communion this morning, as we talk about the cross of Christ, none of us are perfect. And if any of this resonates with you and you're sitting there thinking, you know what, man, I am way off that path. That's what I talked about last week. We can help you. The grace of Jesus Christ will bring you back and put you on that right path. And I say this every week, but I'm here, and we also have shepherds. A few will be up front, a few around the room. Honestly, if you need to just step aside and you want to do that privately, spend some time praying. We don't want you to just hear this and then leave today and then nothing actually changes in your life. We want to make those steps to help you change the things that you need to change. Or if you're ready to become a follower of Jesus and you want to be baptized into Christ, we would love to talk to you about that today. We're going to sing a few more songs. I want to invite you to stand back up and please respond if you need to at this time. Sinners, poor and needy, bruised and broken by the fall, Jesus ready.